Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Well, China and the U.S., two of the biggest economies of the world in the spotlight uh, this Friday here on Money FM 89.3. And joining us to talk about the latest developments from there is Pushan Dutt, Professor of Economics and Political Sciences at INSEAD. We are talking about what's happening in those two big economies and more importantly, how uh, the developments will affect life and business and the economy here in Singapore, the region and the rest of the world. Uh, Professor, good evening. Uh, good evening. Professor, the U.S. GDP came in uh, firmer than expected, but the mood is cautious ahead of the U.S. core PCE price index for December, which is expected uh, later on tonight. So following the mostly upbeat data that we've been seeing, talks are louder now that the Feds will have a chance to defend its hawkish move with interest rates. What are your thoughts? So uh, we seem to be living in this topsy-turvy world where good news is seen as bad news. (laughs) So the GDP numbers are actually quite good. They were much better than expected. Mm -hmm. But the the way the markets are thinking about it is that that means that inflationary pressures are likely to stay here for some time, which means that the Fed will actually continue to raise interest rates, maybe not so severely as before, but it's going to either keep interest rates high or continue to raise them. And that is sort of bad for borrowing costs for firms. That is bad for, uh, there might be some hits to liquidity. So as a result, if the numbers had come in, uh, you know, worse than expected, then the Fed would sort of pause on its interest rate hike. And then the markets would say, okay, you know, so uh, that's, that's good news because interest rates are coming down. But we are, as you said, living in a topsy-turvy world. So nothing is as it seems, how can they handle this? So I think we really have to sort of trust the Fed. The Fed did get the inflation story a little bit wrong, but Mm -hmm. I wouldn't blame them because, you know, we were hit with COVID, there was a supply shock, there was a massive $3 trillion uh, stimulus in the the U.S. economy. So this was like a a once-in-a-century event. So they didn't have a lot of history to fall back upon. Okay. So uh, given that, you know, they probably, you know, got quant- had quantitative easing going for far longer and kept interest rates too low. And this essentially led to inflation. So what they've always been worried about is the inflationary expectations. And now that seems to be uh, coming under control. So if you look at the data on inflationary expectations, it's been sort of steadily coming down. So the markets actually crossed the Fed and the Fed is therefore, you know, has its credibility intact. And mm-hmm. I think it's going to do it's going to be fine. All right, let's take a look at the U.S. debt ceiling limit. Uh, The U.S. is facing the biggest financial crisis in its history, apparently, as Republicans are threatening to stop paying America's bills. What will this mean? So we've seen this story before. Now, the basic story is actually quite simple. Whenever the Republicans are in power and the Democrats hold the White House, they become really concerned about budget deficits and debt, and they take this debt ceiling hostage, mm. and they try to extract concessions in terms of future spending cuts. Now, when there is a Republican in the White House, like Trump, during Trump's time, they don't have such questions or swamps. They just merrily raise the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. So since World War II, the debt ceiling actually has been revised about 100 times. Uh, but recently, the Republicans have weaponized it. By recently, I mean they, the first thing that they, the thing that they did was in 2011 when Obama was in the White House. It was the, not the Freedom Caucus; it was the Tea Party Caucus. Right. They took the U.S. to the brink of default, and the U.S. lost its AAA rating. So the U.S. has hit this 
31 trillion dollar debt ceiling last week they can keep the ball rolling that Janet Yellen the treasury secretary can do that till about june after that the choices become harder either they have to significantly slash spending or default on their debt payments in the former we basically get to a us recession and a shutdown of basic government functions in the second we get a global financial crisis the debt ceiling is completely nonsensical it just <laughs> encourages bad behavior no other country has this because it just encourages politicians to play chicken and yeah. periodically flirt with disaster so it's like the republicans and the democrats having their own personal problems taking this debt ceiling as hostage but squeezed in the middle are investors Americans and well pretty much the rest of the world how will this impact the rest of us so so far the financial markets seem to be quite sanguine because this has happened about you know 10 times in the last decade or so mm-hmm. so they are fairly confident that there will be a last minute fix but we have to be careful that you know history does not always repeat itself so the current republicans in congress uh, are a little bit strange they are prone to conspiracy theories they're always talking about gas stoves and space lasers and things like that mm-hmm. and this time the biden administration is very clear that they will not negotiate over the debt ceiling unlike obama who actually did again it's useful to think about what happened in 2011 in 2011 they simply downgraded us debt and removed its aaa rating Now what did that lead to well people had a panic attack mm-hmm. and they said that let's go run and buy the safest assets now what's the safest the riskless asset in the world well that's US treasuries so everyone rushed into US treasuries and paradoxically this actually led to a fall in interest rates and a stronger dollar so the US has what what is called an exorbitant privilege where you know because of the dominance of the dollar in 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 world trade uh you know they can get away with this in other countries if you know the debt gets downgraded you know they all hell breaks loose exactly. you have high interest rates currencies collapse now the longer it takes for this fight to get resolved the higher it is uh, you know the higher is the likelihood that we get to like financial armageddon basically you know because if this happens in the us the entire banking system collapses the entire global financial system collapses mm-hmm. we are just hoping that senior heads will prevail before it comes to it well let's hope so but where does uh, president joe biden stand now with all the bad news hitting him in the last couple of weeks uh including those classified documents that just, you know, happened very recently. Where is he standing in this point of his presidency, keeping in mind that next year we're going to have another election year in the US? So the Americans have the longest elections in the world, that, you know, barely one election gets over and they start another one. Uh now, I think Biden is still in a good place. You know, they for 2 years the Democrats controlled the House, the Senate and the presidency, mm-hmm. and they got a ton of things done. They got the Chips Act, a climate bill, support for Ukraine. Now, next 2 years nothing will get done okay because the republicans control the house right. but biden has already primed the electorate to say that the blame goes to the maga wing of the republican party uh and you know kevin mccarthy the the republican speaker he was so desperate to become speaker that he's basically put the lunatics in charge of the asylum mm. now so so on that front the fact you know the the republicans are being crazy this works in biden's benefit Now the classified documents that's a different story that I think was a massive own goal by the administration 
They kept it from the press because this was discovered before the midterms. Right. And the documents kept coming out in dribs and drabs. So it was like death by a thousand cuts. So it also neutralized the case uh, they had against Trump. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look carefully, they're not the same, but the, the regular person on the street does we not don't know, care. Yeah. We'll say a pox on both houses. Everyone does this. So what does this mean? So basically, I think Trump got really lucky. So there's no way the Justice Department, you know, he's made a, he has this teflon. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, if there's one thing about Trump, it seems like he gets away with anything. Exactly. And and the second thing that the Republicans will do is they will use this as an excuse to launch a thousand investigations against Biden. They mm-hmm. did that in Benghazi. Mm-hmm. And they were successful. They sort of mortally wounded Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton and they will yes. start the same with Biden. Some might, we might even see impeachment proceedings. So it's going to be a massive headache for the administration. <laughs> it's democracy at play for you. Let's uh, turn to China now. Uh, it reopened very recently with surprising data, and economists are starting to get less gloomy. But what do you think is the sentiment right here? Should we uh, ride with it, or should we be more cautious? So the markets have reacted quite positively to China's opening up, and I think sort of rightfully so. Uh, now, uh, for years, the world has been waiting with bated breath that the Chinese consumer is going to step up and is going to be the engine of demand in the world economy. Now, this, is ha- this hasn't happened in the past. So China's economy remains today driven by heavy investments and exports. But opening up after the zero COVID policy of two years, this might actually change it because the Chinese households, the Chinese consumer, mm-hmm. did not have opportunities to travel in the last two years. And they have about $2.6 trillion in savings sitting there. So we might get what is called revenge spending. Mm -hmm. And that's what the markets and the economists are are, uh, forecasting. So, uh, And then we could see economic growth rebounding, not just in China, but also globally. Uh, But uh, we have to always be careful when making forecasts, because as, uh, you know, John Galbraith once said, the function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. (laughs) Finally, Professor, let's talk about China's declining population. Is this a cause for concern for the global economy and for China? So not immediately. So this was big news everywhere that, you know, uh, the Chinese population was shrinking. This led to lots of doom and gloom scenarios saying democracy is destiny and China is on its way to irrelevance. But I don't think we should overreact. Mm-hmm. The first thing is population, uh, population growth rates, fertility rates, mortality rates, they're very slow moving. They don't fluctuate rapidly. So this demographic decline will take decades to play out. The second thing to realize is that many, many Western countries are in the same boat. Mm -hmm. Many of them have worse fertility rates. Right. So we don't look at Europe or Japan uh, and get really gloomy about these countries, right? Uh, Now, having said that, there are some concerns about the declining population. It's good to be clear about this. The Mm -hmm. first thing is that the dependency ratio rises. So a smaller working population is carrying the burden of of an older retired population. So this puts uh, pressure on budgets because the tax base is shrinking relative to benefits that have to be paid. This is also bad for productivity because if companies get dominated by older workers, research shows that they become less responsive to new trends and technology. The third thing is that uh, when when a country ages, service sector dominates and manufacturing shrinks and Mm. most of the productivity improvements come from manufacturing and not services. But... China and other countries have plenty of options. Move towards automation, so you you know, so workers are less necessary. You substitute uh, labor for capital, 
Another thing is to allow workers to work longer and retire later, like Singapore has been doing over the years. And of course, migration is a, is a way to counter this decline. U.S. is very good at this, so is Singapore, and even Japan is increasingly uh, open. So multiple solutions exist for China. In the short term, the problem is not dire, but mm. in the long term, we know that demographics tend to be relentless. And I guess they have the benefit of learning from all the developed countries as well when it comes to population decline. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, Professor. Professor Prishandad is a professor of economics and political sciences at INSEAD with his thoughts on what's happening around the world. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.